If you took a second uh, temple Jew from the first century and you brought them to, uh, was it St. Gabriel Archangel right. Orthodox Church in Lafayette um, or the local Jewish synagogue, where yeah. do they feel more at home? Hey guys, what's up? Welcome or welcome back to the channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we bring simplicity out of theological complexity. Today, to help me do that, I'm joined by Father Stephen DeYoung. I think you're really going to enjoy his stuff. We're talking about the religion of the apostles. What is it that the apostles believed? What was it that was going around in Second Temple Judaism and just kind of the cultural milieu of the time. Really fascinating stuff, and I think it'll help you learn more about the early church. So if you're interested in that, be sure to stick around for that. I also just want to say a huge thank you to my patrons who make this possible. Thank you so much. If you want to support this channel, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity, or you can make a one-time gift by going to paypal.me slash gospel simplicity. Seriously, to all of you who do that, thank you so much much. Well, I hope you guys enjoy this video. As you're going, if you have thoughts, questions, if there's a big takeaway for you, be sure to put those in the comments. I would love for you guys to join this conversation. Well, with all that being said, here it is. Today, I am joined by the Reverend Dr. Stephen DeYoung. He is a pastor of Archangel Gabriel Orthodox Church in Lafayette, Louisiana. He is also the host of the Whole Council of God podcast from Ancient Faith and author of the Whole Council blog, as well as co-host of the very popular Lord of Spirits podcast. He is also the author of the recent book, which we'll be discussing today, The Religion of the Apostles, Orthodox Christianity in the First Century. I might also add one of my most requested guests of late, and I've had lots of joy in telling people who say, oh, I can't wait till you have Father Stephen DeYoung on that. Just wait. It's going to happen soon. So, Father Stephen DeYoung, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, hopefully I won't disappoint all those people now. The pressure is on. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sure they will enjoy it thoroughly. And so, you, we were just talking about your book uh, before we went live here, and you were mentioning just how it's done really well for ancient faith. I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to know you, because something you mentioned was that the book is a little different than what most of ancient faith publishes. What inspired you to write this book? What's kind of the backstory there? Yeah. So in terms of uh, books I write in, in the Orthodox world in uh, the United States in particular, but the English speaking Orthodox world in general, uh, there are certain things that we have a lot of in terms of translations and literature. Uh, and then there are other things that we have not a lot of or none of. Uh, even things that we have a fair amount of, like translations of the Church Fathers, uh, they're kind of spotty and kind of focused right, on, on certain things. So, for example, with the Church Fathers, anything having to do with the doctrine of the Trinity or Christology or these sort of main central theological things we have translated, but some of the more obscure things uh, or niche things, uh, vast amounts of that is still untranslated. But so uh, once I finished my PhD, I said, well, I'm qualified for a certain part of that lack, right? <laughs> to fill a certain part of that hole. Uh, and I didn't want to start writing my version or my take on things that already exist. 
because there's too much we don't have in English. And uh, so my goal is to write things to fill those holes that where we don't have it in the English Orthodox world yet. And so this book was really trying to put together sort of a one volume biblical theology uh, from an Orthodox perspective, which is something that didn't really exist in English before this. Um, and uh, you probably noticed uh, with your background that I sort of structured it and in terms of the table of contents, structured it in a way that would be familiar to English speaking readers of other similar biblical theologies and those kind of things. Uh, I think the contents are different because it's coming from an Orthodox perspective, but at least the structure of the ideas is something that's a little more familiar. Uh, and that's what really inspired me to put this, put this together uh, and to lead, lead off with it. Yeah. And I think you definitely accomplished that of kind of giving a structure that might feel familiar to those who don't always read Orthodox theology, perhaps, or come from a background of more evangelical circles where we read plenty of biblical theology as well. I shouldn't say we, you know, those of us who are nerdy enough that actually care about this stuff. But, um, and yeah, I, it did feel familiar in that way. And then some of the content uh, was definitely different, but also it covers this area that I've seen kind of, you know, in looking through theology, I a lot of interest in, but not from an Orthodox perspective, at least in my circles, and that is Second Temple Judaism. I kind of first cut my theological teeth on N.T. Wright and his work, and so that, that language of Second Temple Judaism has been a big thing, and it's been a big explosion in scholarly circles, but again, you kind of bring this Orthodox perspective to it that was really interesting and made a lot of connections there. However, before I like jump all the way into that, for those that heard me say maybe three times in the past sentence and a half, Second Temple Judaism, what is this? Why should we care about this? And like, what role does this have in your book? Right, right. So um, when we're dividing up sort of the, the history of Israel and Judea, uh, it's divided into periods. So there's, there's a period referred to as ancient Israel, uh, and then there is the period of the first temple. So Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. We're in the 10th century BC. Uh, and that first temple then survives until the Babylonians destroy it, 587, 586 uh, BC. That's the first temple period. And so then there's the 70 years of uh, exile in Babylon for the people of Judah. When they return, they rebuild the temple. And so the period from roughly 500 BC uh, through until AD 70, when the Romans destroy that temple, when that second temple exists, that's referred to as the second temple period. And so second temple Judaism is really referring to uh, the religious beliefs and practice and world of the Judean people during that time, during that those centuries. Uh, and uh, we really, we tend to think of religion in very modern terms. Uh, and that goes beyond the, the chronic problem that I'm trying to address in this book of sort of taking my local Orthodox Jewish synagogue and saying, oh, well, that must be exactly what they were doing in the first century, uh, and just reading that back. But even just the idea that 
that there was sort of a religion with a structure and a hierarchy and some kind of Jewish systematic theology or something during this period, which of course there wasn't, right? Um, so the Judaism in Second Temple Judaism is, is really more like the way we talk about Hinduism, which is really just the religion of the people of the Indus River Valley. Uh, so there's sort of this variety in Second Temple Judaism of uh, Judean people in, in Palestine, in uh, Egypt, in Ethiopia, in uh, Mesopotamia, in Western Europe, in this diaspora, who have this variety of beliefs and practices and perspectives uh, and uh, trying to sort of survey that to give us this broader understanding of the religious and intellectual world than that the apostles would have had and would have brought with them uh, as they come to know Christ. I really like that. And it goes back to what's essentially, you know, for people who are Bible theology students, like day one, you learn this principle of you always want to be taking passages in context. And we have varying uh, levels of success with that at times, for sure. But this idea of, okay, we're going to look at the period and the cultural milieu from which the New Testament arose and from which like the Christian movement arose. And I think for Christians, this should be really interesting because something happened in the first century that sparked just so much change. But also, we tend to think of it as all rift. So there was this, and then something completely new happened. But when we can understand where it's coming from, we can get kind of a better perspective on it, which is what a lot of your book talks about. And we're going to get into that in a second, but you made a point there that I want to highlight. And you said we often kind of paint uh, the you know local uh, Jewish synagogue back onto the first century as though those are the exact same things. And in your book, you talk a decent amount about this kind of rift between Second Temple Judaism and now for everyone, a third period of rabbinic Judaism. Can you talk about that a little bit and why that's so important? Right. So there's uh, when Second Temple Judaism, when the Second Temple is destroyed that and that period comes to an end, there are different movements that emerge from that. So certain forms of Judaism or Judaism's plural, uh, which is a term that Jacob Neusner really pushed for, a Jewish scholar, that we look at it as Judaism's, uh, certain of those sort of go away when the temple goes away. So the Sadducees who we see in the New Testament, for example, their whole power base was around the temple priesthood. So no temple means no priesthood means right, they sort of evaporate, right? Um, and there are other groups like the Qumran community who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, who through the Roman sort of de-Judification project uh, after the Bar Kokhba rebellion in, in uh, Palestine and Judea, uh, get sort of wiped out. Uh, but there are others that survived, and there are sort of two main threads that survive. One of those, of course, is Christianity, uh, and the other one comes to be rabbinic Judaism. But rabbinic Judaism has this historic road as well. It's not just that uh, those who didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah continued on as they had. Because, of course, their religious belief and practice was also centered around the temple and the sacrificial system and all of these things that have now gone away. Uh, 
So they have this period of construction in the same way that we see a period over the early centuries uh, leading into the church councils and, and these kind of things of where, where the Christian church sort of comes to flower <laughs> in its fullness. So does rabbinic Judaism. And so there's, there's transformation that takes place. And these two groups don't do that in a vacuum. They're aware of each other. Right. It's only in the second century that they really definitively split. And even then there's interaction back and forth and conversation and they're reacting to each other's each other. And uh, it is it sounds very controversial to a lot of Christians uh, to say that once the, the Talmud is formed in the in the uh, fifth century, that it's formed in a lot of ways in reaction to Christianity. But that's not controversial among Jewish scholars. Uh, a, a lot of the things uh, in the book and that I've said other places, I, I sometimes get feedback from Christians that they think they're worried I'm becoming anti-Semitic or something or, or pushing in that direction. Um, by saying that, for example, some of some things in, that we associate with Christianity, even core doctrines are actually earlier than some of the things in rabbinic Judaism. You know, they, they get a little hesitant and worried about that. But if, if you look at what Jewish scholars are saying about the separation between Christianity and Judaism, uh, they're pretty much in agreement <laughs> with, with that. Um, so, yeah, we, we take for granted the historic uh, road of rabbinic Judaism where there's this period where, uh, for example, writing is forbidden. You have in the Second Temple period this very rich literature, right? That's going on in Jewish circles, all kinds of genres, all kinds of of content being generated, and then that sort of immediately disappears in the in the second and third centuries, and even fourth centuries of rabbinic Judaism. And Christians kind of keep it up. You have all this apocryphal Christian literature coming into existence. Some of it heretical, later judged to be. Some of it not. Uh, Christians keep writing, but they stop. Uh, and part of that is because they were looking at what the Christians were doing. They were looking at the New Testament documents. They were looking at these other things that were being written, and they were saying, we need to stop. <laughs> we, need to, we need to take stock. We need to decide what texts are authoritative, right? And we need to, to sort of, it was sort of a conservative move. And so teaching was done orally uh, within that nascent, rabbinic Judaism. And that's why when the, the Talmud is put in writing, it's all sort of these records of sayings of the great rabbis during that period. Here's what they were teaching. We're now finally going to put it down on paper uh, after the end of that oral period. So there is this process that produces rabbinic Judaism as we know it today, in the same way that there, there are over a few centuries, the Christianity that we know today takes form uh, in the form that we now know it. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's going to be helpful for people. And I think one of the really important ideas there is that road that Judaism takes leads it to, it, there are these divergent paths. And so we assume that, you know, because today Christianity and Judaism might be, you know, X feet apart, that they've always been that far apart. But then when you trace it back, there's trajectories there. You're able to get down to this question that you're ultimately asking in the book of, like, in what way is Orthodox Christianity kind of the... Well, I'll let you use the words for how it represents Second Temple Judaism and the relationship to it, because I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. 
there. But I think that's that's really helpful, and hopefully people are starting to put these pieces of the puzzle together as we go along here. One of the things that you mentioned was, and I believe you said it was from uh, Jacob Neusner, the idea of Judaisms, which is something that I've had pushed in Old Testament biblical theology classes, of this idea of not necessarily a monolithic Judaism at the time. And one point that you highlight that I think might, again, be one of these things that is seemingly scandalous to Christians, but maybe not to Jewish scholars, is this idea of monotheism in our very constricted sense of it being a hallmark of Judaism. That for us, you know, maybe if you played a word association game, one of the first things you think of when someone says Judaism is monotheism. And that's, there's some, definitely some truth in that for today. Like that is a big part of Judaism. But you have several statements in there, one like this, where it says, for ancient Israelites and Second Temple Judeans, there was only one Yahweh, so yes, but he existed as multiple persons. Now, I think people might say, what? Like, that sounds that sounds crazy. Aren't Jews monotheists? How does that work? And I could see people saying, you know, yes, like, it seems like later Christian writers read that into the Old Testament. And they kind of worked it in there. But did, did Jews really believe that Yahweh existed as multiple persons? Hey, we'll be right back to the interview. But first, I want to tell you about another sponsor for today, and that is Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a group of Christian counselors that exist to help you get the help you need. You know, one of the first YouTube videos I ever made was called You Can Have Jesus and a Therapist Too. And what I wanted to do in that video was draw out the fact that so many people are struggling with mental health. And the last thing we want to do is make it more difficult for people to reach out to get the help they need by creating this stigma around it. It's something that I'm really passionate about and think we need to end in Christian circles. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Faithful Counseling. Their counselors all will be counseling from a Christian perspective, and you can connect with them from any country in the world. They have counselors that speak many different languages. And hey, if it's important to you to have a counselor from your specific tradition or background, they can do their part to try to pair you up with one of them as well. All of their counselors are licensed with over 3,000 hours of experience. You can connect with these counselors in a variety of ways. Four, in fact, you can do video sessions, phone calls, live chat, or messaging. All of the messaging is secure. And if it's between scheduled sessions, you'll receive a response within 24 to 48 hours. If this is interesting to you, if you think this would be helpful for you or maybe a loved one, I'd encourage you to go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. If you do that, first of all, you'll get 10% off your order and you'll be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours. Again, that's faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity to be matched with a counselor in less than 24 hours and get 10% off your first month. Faithful counseling costs $260 per month, which gets you unlimited messaging with your counselor in four 30-minute sessions. But again, if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, you'll get 10% off that first month. Lastly, Faithful Counseling is not a crisis line. If you are currently experiencing suicidal thoughts or ideation, please reach out to a crisis line or hotline. You can find one of them at www.crisistextline.org. Please do so and reach out. You do not have to do this alone. Well, thank you all so much, and I will let you get back to the video. But if you want to check them out, again, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. The link is in my bio and in the pinned comment. Well, back to the interview. Right. The, the, um, the category of sort of what's called unitarian monotheism. There's one God and he's one person. Uh, 
these are categories of much later scholarship that get read back into things. So the term monotheism is really coined actually in like the 16th century. Uh, and, and it's Greek words. I mean, monos and theos are Greek words. So the church fathers, for example, could have used that word. Uh, uh, Greek-speaking uh, Jews could have used that word, but they didn't. Um, but what happens is later scholarship, uh, in the, as we get into the modern period, wants to sort of classify everything and come up with a taxonomy of everything. And one of those things is religion. So they say, well, we have these religions here that are monotheists, where they believe in one God, and these religions here that are polytheists. And, you know, then variations in between and around those. Um, but those are sort of external imposed categories. And when you actually read the people who started using them, it's actually kind of horrifying. In a lot of ways, because there's a lot of sort of the politics and pseudoscience of the time coming into that. So polytheism is always very primitive, right? And then, and then monotheism is this advance. And then if you're a 19th century German Hegelian, then you, know, you do this thesis, antithesis, synthesis thing where you have polytheism and then monotheism. And then the Trinity is like a synthesis. And eventually you arrive at 19th century German Protestantism, which is the pinnacle of all human religion, uh, which was just totally objective on their part. Uh, but yeah, but um, when, when you go back and let the sources sort of speak for themselves, right, rather than me coming with my categories and trying to say, okay, which box am I going to put the, these people in? And, and you go to the writings in the Second Temple period, what you find is almost universally, they saw there being at least two persons or hypostases, which becomes the later term used in the church um, and uh, is also used by modern scholars, actually, when talking about ancient divinities. But um, there were two persons uh, of Yahweh, at least. Um, so sort of a what you might call a binatarianism, minimally. Uh, and it was sort of hazy and shadowy to them how these two persons related to each other exactly <laughs> and who in particular the, i mean the, the first person obviously well this is god right so that that was simple but then who is this second person and how does he relate to god and how if he came to be in that position how did he come to be in that position uh the father and son language uh, is not a Christian innovation. That is fairly common in, in talking about these figures, but even that doesn't totally define it. So you have certain people who will uh, see it as, well, this is some human who has been sort of divinized. Uh, so you'll find some sources, some Second Temple Jewish writings where this is Adam or Abraham uh, or Enoch, uh, who ascends into heaven, uh, or David himself. Uh, it's some of the sources that connect this person with the Messiah. They'll say, oh, well, this is David, and he's going to come back, right? Um, and then you have other sources where this is, well, this is some kind of high rank, higher-ranking angelic being sort of above the other angels. This is sort of the greatest angel. Uh, and you find other sources who... Uh, are very close to what becomes Christian orthodoxy, that this is 
just an eternal second person. Uh, and those discussions really continue into the into the Christian period. So the, the Christian heresies that quote unquote arise in the early centuries are really continuations of these modes of thought that were already there in Judaism. So Christianity is, is united even at the very beginning of saying Jesus of Nazareth is this person. But then you will find adoptionists who say, well, yes, Jesus of Nazareth was divinized into this person. Or you will find Arians who say, yes, Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnation of this angelic being, right? And then what becomes the, the Orthodox party? You also see already though threeness also sometimes in some of those sources. Uh, Philo is sort of exhibit A, Philo of Alexandria, uh, who talks about uh, these two figures of the logos and uh, wisdom. He has two. Uh, there are others, though, too, who have three persons uh, within Yahweh. Uh, and this, um, this is something you can read more about in Jewish sources. So this is sort of the, the classic work on this is Alan Sagel's Two Powers in Heaven. Uh, where he talks about the the binatarian view and its universality, and then how it's sort of repudiated by rabbinic Judaism in the second century, and gives all of that history. Uh, there are other works as well. Daniel Boyarin's uh, Borderlines is really good on this. He's writing about the separation in the second century of Judaism and Christianity, and he talks about how the Word of God was seen as a person by within Second Temple Judaism very commonly. Uh, so again, this is something you'll find more actually in Jewish scholarship than a lot of Christian scholarship that tends to take this evolutionary view still that sort of Christian theology started out very simple. You know, they thought Jesus was just a man and then they started thinking about it more and said, well, really, isn't he kind of divine? And then later still, they thought about it more and said, well, no, I think he was really divine. You know, it sort of goes from there. Um, if you, if you look to those Jewish sources, they, they will say these ideas pre-existed. So what Christianity does is just identify Jesus of Nazareth as this person. That's really interesting. And it, I'll say if I remember, because I usually promise to link things in the description and then end up forgetting. But if I remember, I'll try to link those uh, texts that you mentioned in the description, because I think people will really enjoy checking those out. And I think, you know, the evolutionary view has had such sway in academic circles but it's i think there's it makes sense when you look at this idea that no like they had these concepts already if you're trying to make sense of the explosive growth of christianity which of course we don't want to do on just like a socio-historical level but the fact that they'd have kind of this shelf space if you will for more than a singularity in the godhead it would make more sense that you know you could see Jews converting in mass to Christianity and it at least seeing seeming like oh this could be a plausible thing we have a category for this even though it might be bending some of those categories and making new use of them I'd also I'd love to ask kind of stepping back there with this like binitarian view what are some of the main kind of texts that are sparking discussion on this because at some place in the old testament you have some very strong statements of like the Lord, your God, the Lord is one kind of like the Shema there and different things. But then you do have some of these texts that, you know, you 
you see, like I'm familiar with Christian reflection on these, but I'd love to know if they're the same text or maybe different texts that were sparking some of this thought and reflection among Jews of that time. Yeah, I mean, the, the big central one, the one that a lot of this ends up revolving around in the Second Temple world is uh, in Daniel, the, the enthronement of the Son of Man with the Ancient of Days. Uh, and the fact that there are thrones, plural, set. This becomes, you know, the big, the big focus, um, and so often the Son of Man is the name that's used when you read Second Temple sources for this second person. So when you read First Enoch, sometimes just the Book of Enoch, uh, it's the Son of Man who appears there, right? And who is uh, the Book of Enoch or First Enoch is really a compilation of a bunch of texts and traditions regarding Enoch, but in, in some of the later ones, that figure is identified as the Messiah, right? The Son of Man is identified as the coming Messiah. And we see Christ himself talking about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, referring to himself as the Son of Man, identifying as that figure. The people he was talking to in the first century had a framework to understand that, uh, that, that of, of fitting in there. And uh, the reason I say that's so central is that that's the text that ends up getting addressed by rabbinic Judaism down the line. Uh, once that's been sort of disavowed, they have to come back to that and say, well, okay, then what is this talking about? And uh, the Talmud actually gives two different answers. <laughs> so you can see there was still thought going on even at that period, right? That you have these two different answers from two different perspectives. Uh, one of them in uh, Tractate Hagiga is aimed at uh, Rabbi Akiva, because it was sort of well known even by that time that Rabbi Akiva, at the end of the first and beginning of the second century, had believed in two powers in heaven. He had he had held to this. And so they, they insert this story where he's sort of corrected on it, where they say, oh, no, no, he figured out that was wrong, right? And uh, what he what is asserted there is, is that uh, the, the two thrones and the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man are sort of two manifestations of the one God. So sort of what we would call modalism in Christian circles, uh, that one of these is for mercy and one of these is for justice. Right. And so it's just sort of different ways God appears. And then they read that back. So, for example, in, in some of the Exodus passages where you see um, uh, the angel of the Lord and Yahweh, right, or... Um, there's a there's a uh, text in Exodus that says that Yahweh is a man of war, and that gives modern people a lot of problems because we don't like the violence of the Old Testament, which is the subject of my next book. But uh, <laughs> um, but the the problem that that ancient Judaism had with it was it says Yahweh is a man. So they were like, wait, right? what is what is that about? And so they read that back in. They say, oh, well, see, this is the this younger appearance, the son of man. This is for justice and war, right? When he appears to go into battle and issue judgment. And then this old, the ancient of days, the old man appearance is for when he's showing mercy. Um, so there's that. And then the other answer in the Talmud is there's another story about another rabbi who gets corrected on it, where he has this heavenly vision and he sees this angel who is sitting down in heaven. And in the ancient world, sitting down was a sign of authority, 
Uh, and so he concludes from that that there are two powers in heaven. Uh, and then in the story in the Talmud, uh, the angel is taken and beaten, like whipped by the other angels for having given him the wrong impression. And he's sort of exiled and cast out for having held to this heresy. But you can see they're still trying to think through think through what to do with that. Um, there, there are other passages. I mean, some of the some of the famous ones that they're trying to deal with in the Old Testament are, uh, especially the angel of the Lord figure. But then, for example, at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where it says that Yahweh, who's standing there talking to Abraham, calls down fire from Yahweh in heaven. Everybody <laughs> sat back and said, "Well, wait, wait a second, right?" So. That all of these are being dealt with because everyone is reading these things very closely. And they're reading those earlier texts like the Torah through the lens of texts like Daniel that have this son of man passage and a heavenly man who appears and speaks to Daniel and trying to understand what's going on there. That's, that's wonderful. So much to think about there. And I love that we can see them working through these questions actively and even kind of painting things back onto things or like the whipping of the angel is such an interesting way of kind of reworking stories and kind of showing how the theology is developing. And again, in perhaps in reaction here in opposition to Christianity, trying to say, yeah, like we see this in the tradition, but this is wrong. We've come to that conclusion. So we have to figure out how to, how to show that in a compelling way. Very interesting stuff. Something that you know, your book kind of leads to throughout, again, is this relationship between Judaism and Christianity, or Orthodox Christianity and spe specifically, and is it continuity, rupture, how do those things work? And you come at it, and I think it's like the first chapter, in a really interesting way, talking about Paul. And you ask, Paul, convert, question mark, I think is how it's put out there. And to many, like, that's like the quintessential thing of Paul. Like, yes, Paul is the convert from Jew Like, that is adjective number one for Paul, perhaps. Uh, missionary, convert, you know, we'll put those in there somewhere. So, like, they might almost be surprised to even hear that question. Why would we ask if Paul was a convert? Isn't that what, like, every Wikipedia article on him would say? Um, however, you outline a bit of how you understand Paul and the apostles' self-understanding of their relationship between their commitment to Jesus and their Judaism. Now, this is always difficult, but if we could get into the mind of Paul, what is it that you're seeing there? What is How would he see himself and the relationship between those things? Right, and, and we really have to go by how, right, St. Paul describes himself, <laughs> how he describes himself in his own experience. That's the closest we can get to getting into his mind. Uh, but yeah, we, we take that for granted, and that comes from uh, I mean, St. Augustine, when he reads about St. Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, he identifies with it very much. And there's nothing invalid about him identifying with it, but that shapes how he reads it, right? And so he was very much a convert from, you know, Manichaeism and, and Platonism to Christianity. And uh, Martin Luther does the same thing, right? He He very much identifies with what happens with St. Paul in, in his own experience. But then because of that, his own experience shapes how he reads it. And uh, in the West, 
you're you're if you're doing any kind of Western Christian theology, you're an heir to Saint Augustine and uh, and or Martin Luther, right? <laughs> That's maybe both, maybe one or the other. Um, and so that shaped how it's read. But I mean, if we really go back and think about it, in 35 AD, when this happened, there weren't these two separate religions, Judaism and Christianity, where you could leave one and go to the other, right? They, they, they don't exist as, as entities. They aren't separate communities yet. That's not going to happen for another 120 years. Uh, so uh, we're reading back in when we, when we approach it uh, that way. What St. Paul talks about when he talks about it, and we have uh, in the book of Acts, we have St. Luke's narration of it sort of as it happens. We have at the end of the book of Acts, St. Paul in a uh, speech going back and talking about it. And then he himself talks about it later in uh, Galatians. And the language he uses there is drawn directly from Jeremiah. Uh, and uh, he talks about being called uh, from his mother's womb to be the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the nations. And that's the exact same language that's used, especially if you compare the Greek of the prophet Jeremiah's call, uh, that he was called from his mother's womb to be a prophet to the, to the nations, to the Gentiles. Uh, and as you look at the event of the vision that St. Paul has on the road to Damascus, and you you put it in line with the Old Testament paradigm, you see that what this is comparable to is Isaiah's is called to be a prophet where he sees the Lord high and lifted up right in the temple, and Ezekiel's called to be a prophet where he sees sort of the throne chariot of God. That that's this is the natural way St. Paul, as a very faithful and very pious uh, Jew at this time would have interpreted his experience, right? And, and we see him doing that in his own words, uh, lining it up with those prophetic calls uh, of the Old Testament. And so the, the the Messiah coming was not sort of a surprise, right, to them. There's there's sort of this unspoken presupposition in the way that we look at the beginnings of Christianity that. Uh, they sort of had this one religious belief and this one expectation. And then when Christ comes, it's so radically different that they have to just sort of scrap all of that and start over. Uh, but you don't get that from reading the New Testament. The New Testament is continuously filled with quotations of the Old Testament saying, no, this is fulfilled. This is now the realization. This is now the fullness of that. Uh, there's not this disassociation. And so St. Paul, when he set out for Damascus, was expecting a Messiah to come. Uh, the reason we get so many would-be Messiahs in the first century is that based on their reading of Daniel, they figured that was the rough time period based on the weeks in Daniel. So that they were expecting it to happen soon. Uh, and he expected that when the Messiah came, he would establish this new age would begin, this messianic age. And then at the end of that messianic age, the end would come. So when it's revealed to him very directly and very powerfully that Jesus, who he had been persecuting, is the Messiah, is the Christ, uh, he doesn't start a new religion or scrap everything and start over. He isn't like, oh, everything I knew was wrong. He says, okay, well, we need to adjust the timetable, right? This means the messianic age has begun. 
Uh, and him coming to me means I now have this job in relation to that messianic age. And having read the prophets thoroughly, he knew that one of the things that was going to happen in that messianic age was that all of the nations were going to come flooding to Jerusalem to come and worship the God of Israel. And so he sees himself as the agent of that. So the broad worldview, the broad picture, the broad timeline stay basically the same for St. Paul. He just realized he had moved from one part of that to another once he knew who, who the Messiah was. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I want to anticipate one question that I think people might have, and you've hinted at it a bit in talking about in the second century, there is this rupture that happens between Christians and Jews. We see some conflict there. There's still dialogue, but we start to see theology um, kind of becoming, I guess, I don't want to use this too uh, strongly, but like polemical in a sense between one another. Um And I could see people saying, you know, maybe having some knowledge of that or just hearing you say that and saying, well, if this is, you know, primarily in continuity, but with a shift in the timetables and, you know, saying that Jesus is, in fact, this Messiah that we all have been hoping for, he is the one um, that they're using these Jewish categories. Why do we see such conflict arising? Right. Well, and... There are, there are consequences for identifying uh, this particular person, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's hard to make a broad claim. It's like today, you know, a, a hundred people hear the gospel <laughs> and people, different people receive it different ways, you know, and saying, well, wait, why, why did the gospel take root here and not there? Or why did, you know, some, a lot of that is the Holy Spirit and, you know, you know, we don't know exactly, but um, because there was this diversity within Judaism at the time that Christ is born uh, and there are all kinds of different relationships going on there and not just spiritually. I mean, it's not just a question of, of religious belief. There are power relationships and political things going on. Uh, the Roman persecution from which uh, Judaism had a certain amount of exemption most of the time, not all the time, uh, and which Christianity didn't necessarily share. And there are all kinds of other relationships going on here that influence people and, and why things happen. But um, you see, for example, that the, the primary group that that becomes rabbinic Judaism is the Pharisees. That's why they're so central in in both the New Testament texts and following on is that, you know, the the Sadducees became less of a concern (laughs) once the temple is destroyed. And the nascent Christian community wasn't facing a lot of opposition from Egyptian Jewish sects or Ethiopian Jews who had a more apocalyptic framework. They weren't the ones who were in the direct uh, conflict. Uh, and so I, I think we see in the New Testament texts themselves the beginning of this conflict between the party of the Pharisees and Christ himself. And then if you read Acts closely, you know, when, when Acts 15 and the Council of Jerusalem happens, the problem is instigated by a group of Christians, but who Christians who had come from the party of the Pharisees. Uh, and so there were there were certain viewpoints within the broader Judaisms of the time 
that were more or less compatible, right? The, 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 the perspectives and the framework that was adopted by Christianity that continued into Christianity had already been rejected by a lot of those uh, Jewish groups, you know, as, as not be. And so when that becomes Christianity, when those groups say, well, this is the Messiah, it's actually going to be more natural for those other groups that were at odds with them to say, well, no, he's not. Right? Than, to, than to even even really consider it. So I, I think there's a lot of dynamics going on there, but I think that's one of them is that, that Christianity is this continuity, but it's a continuity with particular elements and particular groups and particular viewpoints within Second Temple Judaism. Uh, and that diversity that was already there continues. Which again highlights this dynamic, this important framework of Judaisms, not just a monolithic Judaism. And if there's already conflict and it aligns with one side, I think that's a great way of putting it, that, well, it's natural that that's going to be rejected because you already have this tension there. And of course, as you mentioned before, there's a lot of mystery and the element of the role of the Holy Spirit in essentially, you know, how how the seed lands, you know, where where the gospel takes root and where it doesn't. I want to make sure in this conversation to avoid something that I think you make sure to avoid in your book well. Um, so far, we've been talking mainly about the, the belief of these people, which I think is really important. But at the very beginning of this whole conversation, you mentioned that today in the West, we tend to have like a truncated sense of what religion is, and that it's like just this one kind of siloed thing, maybe a, a series of like a a systematic theology, like Wayne Grudem, that's religion right there. (laughs) Uh, But there's more to it than that. And you highlight in your book aspects of ritual and, well, I guess scholars would call it cultic practice, although that might throw people off using that word. Uh, But I think where this gets us is, so not only is there an amount of continuity in the beliefs, but you highlight also kind of this continuity in the spiritual practices, if you will, for lack of a better word. Could you speak about some of that? Yeah, we, we very much as, as modern people segment, segment these things, right? So we talk about, you know, there's politics over here and then religion and then economics. And, and, and even within our own personal lives, there's sort of, well, here's my work life and here's my family life and here's my church life and here right, as these these sort of separate spheres. And that didn't really exist in the ancient world. In the ancient world, everything is all permeated, you know, and, and is together, right? So when you have people worshiping Caesar as a god, you can't separate politics and religion, right? Like, those are, those are going to naturally combine. You can't be apolitical when talking about, talking about uh, religion. Um, so when those are blended together, we have to see Christianity as less a religion is sort of this ancillary thing that you either do or do not have in your life and see Christianity more as a way of living in the world. And so it encompasses all of that. The way I am with my family is part of being a Christian, the way I am in my work, the way I am uh, in my hobbies, the way I am at church, all of that is part of being a Christian in all of those spheres. Uh, And so because of that, because it sort of encompassed all of life, it's sort of natural, and you see this in Second Temple Judaism, you see this in early Christianity, uh, the birth of a child, weddings, 
funerals, <laughs> all of these things, all of these aspects of life are all deeply religious and deeply involved. Uh, the way we begin the day with prayer and end the day with prayer, the way, the way we uh, eat our food and what we eat <laughs> right, on any given day. This is all involved in, in this Christian way of living and it's all disciplined and ordered and structured uh, uh, by God. Um, and part of, and, and this is really sort of the last section of the book, I get into this a lot, uh, part of what I think is a misunderstanding of the role of the Torah or the law by a lot of contemporary Christians is that uh, we've not only said, well, yeah, we don't follow the food laws, we don't follow the, you know, so we could just kind of ignore all that stuff, is that it's not just ignoring those specific things, but sometimes it's just, well, now it doesn't matter what I eat and what I do and how I do these, you know, um, that, that not like an antinomianism where you say there's no sin, right? But in terms of the conduct of our daily lives, we tend to look at a lot of these things as just sort of neutral. You know, they're sort of secular and neutral and uh, not not uh, directly connected to our faith uh, and to uh, our life as, as Christians. But that's not something that, that there, there was no neutral ground in the ancient world, right? Something was either claimed by Christ or it remained in this world that's under the, the domination of, of evil, of de demonic powers. Uh, and uh, so e everything needed to be sanctified uh, and and uh, brought to Christ and blessed uh, and made holy in, in every aspect uh, of our lives. And that was done primarily, as you mentioned, ritually. Uh, and that's why there were all these rituals connected with childbirth and, uh, and then uh, bringing the child into the church and uh marriages and funerals and uh and the eucharist on this regular basis which is after all eating right and in continuity with the with the uh sacrificial system as i argue in the book and that this is a a, a daily thing where all of these things are made holy and those structures then make us holy as we practice them and and pursue them yeah, there's so much there. And as you were saying that, I just had the thought of if there isn't yet a book called The Myth of Neutrality that gets at this idea of the Christian way of kind of breaking that down, um, there needs to be. So maybe your book after the one on divine violence can be uh, on that. Um, I'll buy it. But no, there's there's so much there. And I I could chase so many rabbit trails, but I think maybe one of the most profitable would be to talk about this idea, and this is maybe showing myself a little bit here, the circles I grew up in, which were evangelical circles through and through, that like to talk about the early church in kind of this broad brush way that generally seemed to have an uncanny resemblance to whatever it was that we were doing. It was kind of, you know, uh, a way of painting back onto it. And you mentioned in, I think it's like the, the prologue or the preface to your book, that we we do we tend to think of the early church as this like house church movement that didn't have a lot of structure that kind of was a break away from ritual i remember even listening to a popular uh worship song that says like break down the walls of all my religion 
tear down the walls of all my traditions or something like that. Like that's what Christianity is, right? Didn't it move away from ritual and religion? Um, and you show in your book that that's not quite the case. How is it that you think we've come to that understanding and what can we do to kind of see the early church as it was? Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, there are very telling things, uh, when we, when we read the scriptures closely, like at the beginning of the book of Acts, we have the early Christian community continuing to go and pray at the temple. Uh, now, they're not going and participating in sin offerings, right, and, and, and that kind of thing, but they are going to the temple to pray. And the language that's used there, for example, is that they continued at the prayers. Not just they prayed, but <laughs> the prayer, that there were times of prayer. And they continued to pray at those times. Uh, and uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians, St. Paul argues sort of very directly when he's talking about the, the Eucharist and what's going on there, his comparisons are to the altar at the temple, right? Is not what is offered there a participation, right, in, in the God of Israel. And he compares it to pagan sacrifices and says what they offer, they offer to demons. I don't want you to be partakers of demons. And says in the Eucharist, we're partaking of Christ, right? So, so he's continuing to, obviously, there's, there's something that is shifted there, something very important, right, in the sacrifice of Christ and uh, how the Eucharist works. But it's still within this continuity. It's not now we've scrapped one and this is a whole different thing where we're starting from scratch. Um, we see that again and again with all of these, all of these detailed, detailed things. Um, I think uh, I try to be very charitable to the Protestant reformers because I think they legitimately were trying to, as best they could, get back past a lot of the medieval Western accretions that had shown up in Roman 16th century Roman Catholicism. Right, which which even the Roman Catholic Church today would admit to, right? Because they had a Counter Reformation, right? There were there were things that they saw and they rolled back, um, but they didn't have the data to do it, right? So uh, Luther and Calvin were actually themselves were very conscientious about trying to go back to the Church Fathers, at least the ones they had, and the ones they knew were legitimate, because there were also all kinds of false writings going around at that time in history to try to get back to what that was like. Uh, and, and you find them, for example, making statements that they fully believed were true and were based on the best evidence they had, like uh, John Calvin at one point saying, well, there were no icons before the sixth century in churches. Well, we just know that's not true now. <laughs> Archaeologically, we know it's, it's just factually not true. But he was doing the best, the best that he could. Um, and so I, I think that the modern American evangelical view i don't think it's it's necessarily a capitulation to this evolutionary view of the church although that's there as a subtext that the church started over and therefore started very simply and became more complex over time and we want to get back past that complexity to the simple original um i, I think it's a, a continuation of uh calvin and, and luther's impulse in modern evangelical Christianity. But uh, part of what I'm doing in the book, at least on the apologetic level for, for, for evangelical and, and other Protestant readers is to say, well, you know, we have a lot more information available to us today 
than Luther and Calvin did about what the early church was like. Archaeological evidence of ancient churches, Second Temple Jewish writings, thanks to Qumran and <laughs> thanks to uh, translations. We have all of this information now available to us. Even if you follow out that instinct, uh, I'm arguing in the book, this may be the central argument of the book, is that if you follow out that instinct with all of the information we have available today, you arrive at something that looks very much like what the Orthodox Church is doing. Uh, maybe not identical in every detail, but very much in continuity with and, and very much in that vein. Yes, and you, you work that, that case very well, and it leads exactly where I wanted to go with the next question. Um, and before I do that, I want to say I do appreciate the, the, the charity given to the Reformers, and I think we do have to recognize that we are at such a privileged place today to have such a wealth of information. I mean, I've got Logos on my computer. I pull it up and can search however many things I want. And that simply wasn't a reality for people working in the 16th century or at different times. Even though we're further removed from some of these times, we do have certain privileges. And anyway, I just want to say I appreciate the, the charitable view towards that. But where I wanted to go is this kind of question, which I initially, when I first sent you the outline, so sorry if you thought I was going to skip this question, I was further up, but I think it's really kind of where this is all leading is the relationship between Orthodox Christianity and the religion of the apostles, (laughs) cleverly the title of your book, (laughs) Um, but, and also second temple Judaism. So, I mean, if you, I guess I'll ask these questions separately though, maybe they don't need to be separate. And I think that's kind of what we're getting at here in a lot of ways is if you took a second uh, temple Jew from the first century, and you brought them to, uh, was it St. Gabriel Archangel right. Orthodox Church in Lafayette, um, or the local Jewish synagogue. Obviously, for I mean, this is just a thought experiment. There's so many things that would be unfamiliar to them, but yeah. where do yeah. they feel more at home? And I guess the, the second question would be, if you took one of the apostles, obviously, they're going to, well, actually, I'm going to amend the second question, so let's just work with the first one. Okay. Um, right. So uh, if, if you went to an Orthodox Jewish synagogue today, uh, and then you went to an Orthodox divine liturgy on a, on a Sunday morning or on a feast day, uh, you would notice that the first part of the Orthodox liturgy and the Orthodox synagogue service are very closely parallel to each other. Uh, that and now there would be certain differences. For example, in the Orthodox synagogue, you would have a procession with the Torah scroll. And in the first part of the Orthodox divine liturgy, you would have a procession with the gospel book <laughs> held high. But you would, you would see these parallels uh, because what has historically happened was that we, what we see with the early Christians before the split we see this in the book of Acts amongst other places, is that on the Sabbath, they would go to the synagogue because again, they haven't left Judaism, right? This is still for them the same same faith. They would go there and there they would have, you know, the singing of Psalms, the reading of the scriptures, uh, some kind of homiletics, some kind of sharing preaching that was done different ways in different places in the ancient world, whether you'd have one person like a rabbi expositing or whether you'd have visitors or multiple people right um and then on 
the Lord's Day, on the following day, they would gather for the Eucharist, for for that that ritual action. And so then what happens when the the Christians are expelled from the synagogue in the mid-2nd century is that they take that synagogue part of the service and they bring it over onto the Lord's Day as well. And those two then are, are put together. And we now call that the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the sacrament. But really, it's those two, those two pieces. And so uh, I would argue that the, the, the second temple uh, Jewish person, uh, and again, levels of familiarity would also depend, as we talked about the diversity, where they're from, right? <laughs> uh, but... Uh, they would, I think, recognize the same things going on in the first part of the liturgy and in the Orthodox synagogue service. And then I think when it got in the Orthodox liturgy to the second part, they would recognize things from the structures of temple worship and sacrificial worship. Um, and again, there would be some, some discontinuities, right? And, and uh, you know, you'd have to explain who Jesus was, for example. <laughs> Right, we keep talking about that he was the Messiah, but they would. I mean, even if they didn't understand the language at all, right? They would say, "Okay, they're now offering from their perspective bread and wine to God. This is their right, their 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 sacrificial ritual." Um, and uh, depending on where they were from in the Second Temple Jewish world, they might or might not think it was weird that we weren't in Jerusalem. Uh, so you have, you know, the temple in Elephantine in, in uh, Egypt. You have other places where uh, in Qumran they were do- they weren't actually offering sacrifices, but they had reconstructed a lot of the temple worship there. So someone from Qumran might identify that immediately. Oh, they're doing what we did, and they're doing sort of the temple worship here. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it, it it's not as simple as which one would they recognize more, but they they would recognize what's going on in the divine liturgy. Uh, and, and see that something has happened. And that would be the place where you'd have to preach the gospel to them and say, well, yeah, here's why now there's this shift because the Messiah came, he's Jesus of Nazareth, right? I appreciate you playing along with that thought experiment. I know they're always, <laughs> by nature, they're difficult. And I think you parsed that out really well And that there's enough points of continuity for them to have kind of uh, an understanding of what's going on. But Obviously, there's also things that are different, which would require some uh, bringing up to speed. But even those things, um, they wouldn't be so categorically strange that they wouldn't even have some type of shelf space for it. I appreciate that. The second thing I want to ask, and it's something, I believe it's towards the end of your book that you get to some of these things that I think, I, I mean, I don't know why you put them here, but perhaps as you're kind of mounting a collective case, especially to maybe Protestants uh, or evangelicals, these are things that might seem a little more strange. And so kind of the second thought experiment is like you, you take one of the apostles and you bring them to, you know, your local house church that's trying to just like be faithful to the Bible, like their sola scriptura, kind of maybe like an Anabaptist vibe meeting in houses, trying to be, you know, the original church. And you take them to an Orthodox church where they might hear about this term theotokos and they have like this formal priesthood versus, you know, it's just everyone gathering in homes, breaking bread, maybe not even like in a Eucharistic way. Maybe they're literally breaking bread. Why would they not be terrified? Because I think the people at the Anabaptist house church would think the apostles would be terrified to see this formal priesthood and this mention of the theotokos, these 
things that we think of as very late things oftentimes. Does that make sense? That was a long question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, I mean, the, the, the quick answer is I think when they went to the house church, they would think, oh, these must be like persecuted Christians or something who don't have a church to go to. And so they're, right, they're worshiping in their home. Uh, whereas I, I, I think they would, would look at something like liturgy and that would be more in the vein of the kind of worship that they were used to, right, that, that they were used to. To experiencing, but in, in terms of those particular things that that might be suspected would be just bizarro world. Um, I mean, again, there, there would be if we're talking about one of the apostles, okay, who has who has received Christianity. Um, for example, they would they would understand that uh, Theotokos means the one who gave birth to God because they know Greek, so they would say, "Oh, right, Mary, the Lord's the Lord's mother," uh, and. Uh, in terms of us mentioning them, I, I, I make the argument in the book that they wouldn't think that was that weird because there was already going back into the Old Testament. Uh, one of the, the things that we see in the Old Testament when we read closely the books of, of Samuel and, and Kings, and uh, specifically here in the book of Kings, once we get past David to Solomon and his successors, uh, once we get into the bad kings, it's easy to start skimming, you know, because it's just sort of like, then this guy became king. He was evil, right? <laughs> and, and yeah, and he was so many years old that he died and he was wicked. Um, but uh, when you go through the kings of Judah in particular, as opposed to the northern kingdom of Israel, every time a new king comes to the throne in the Davidic line, it gives the name of his mother. And the reason for that is that there's this institution established by Solomon with his mother, uh, Bathsheba of all people, uh, where he has this throne set at his right hand. And uh, the queen mother, it's the Geburah in Hebrew, becomes uh, sort of his chief advisor. And so we see later on in, in the books of Kings that this role actually has a certain amount of authority within within the administration, uh, especially when Athaliah later, who's one of uh, Ahab's uh, family members, gets that role and uses it to try to exterminate the line of David. Uh, is, is wicked. You see sort of the, the power uh, that it held. But so the, the announcement of the new king was accompanied with, here's the name uh, of his mother. Uh, and so the Messiah being by definition the Davidic king, the culmination of the line of David, uh, you would expect a proclamation uh, of his mother. And a, a piece of proof we have that that happened, that I point out in the book, is that uh, Celsus, or Celsus, depending on who taught you how to pronounce Latin, uh, in the second century is one of the sort of great, probably the greatest ancient pagan critic of Christianity. He writes this sort of quote-unquote, refutation of Christianity. And we know how powerful it was because everybody in the second and third centuries sort of responds to it from the Christian perspective. They take it seriously. Uh, and one of the attacks that he made was on uh, the Virgin Mary, saying, well, she's just this peasant woman. She's not fit to be the mother of a king. Well, this is a period in history where uh, Celsus couldn't go to his local church and sit there in the worship service, right? Uh, and there wasn't a Bible he could go and pick up and read right, in, what, in one place. So all he knew about Christianity was what was in the public proclamation. 
So that tells us for him to know that and be able to make that attack, the fact that this woman, the Virgin Mary, is the mother of the Messiah, had to be part of that public proclamation. Uh, so I, I think that the, any apostle we picked would have a framework for understanding why we were mentioning uh, the Theotokos. And then something similar with, uh, in terms of the priesthood, uh, it's really the, the presbyterate. My title is actually presbyter. Uh, the English word priest is actually derived from it uh, etymologically. Um, but uh, this is when you look at the way in which the, the ecclesia, the assembly of Israel was structured in the old covenant, what you see in the new Testament is just that that structure is brought over, right? So you have 70 elders, that institution becomes the Sanhedrin by the time we get to the new Testament, but then we have Christ appointing the 70. And then we have these sort of, uh, we have these elders within the Christian communities. And when St. Paul goes to Ephesus, he appoints the elders there. He tells St. Timothy, wherever you go, appoint presbyters, right? Appoint elders. And there are overseers. So these, these structures are inherited from the old covenant community. They're certainly transformed, right? As we come into the New Testament with the, the revelation of Christ. But then they're, they're continued. So it's not that they begin with this structureless chaos, right? Uh, everything we read in St. Paul's epistles is the opposite of that. Everything needs to be done decently and in good order. And we have leadership and you support that leadership and, and follow that leadership, right? So we, we see these things in the pages of the New Testament. So again, I, I think um, while, while the robes might look a little different <laughs> than, what they're, than what they're used to, I, th I think any apostle who you brought in would say, oh, well, so, okay, these are the presbyters, right? And and, and these are the, the deacons, right? They, they knew what deacons were. They appointed them themselves right? and say, okay, that's how this community is functioning. So I, I, I think there were frames for all of these things. Um, and again, now that we have this information to available to us, we can see just how far back these things go, even pre- uh, the birth of Christ, these structures were already in place. And the the apostles don't scrap them and start over, but they transform them. They see them as being now fulfilled in Christ and in his church. I think that's a great kind of summary statement there, not scrapped and started over, but fulfilled and transformed for kind of just the, the theme of the, the whole book and, and this conversation today. And Father Stephen, I have to say thank you so much for this conversation. This has been an absolute joy and privilege. I've really enjoyed it. I want to end with one final question, which is kind of where the book leaves off. You talk about kind of the apologetic purpose of the book, but I've got a very diverse audience and I can imagine a lot of people saying, hey, like, maybe I'm not Orthodox. Maybe I'm like a high church Anglican. Maybe I'm a Catholic. And I'm saying like, yeah, I agree with a lot of this stuff, but I think that, that the apostles would come to my church. If you kind of had your elevator pitch, if you will, I know this could be like an entire episode on its own, but, but why Orthodoxy? Is it the, the beliefs? Is it get to this ritual area of the continuity? Like what is it about the Orthodox Church specifically amongst other high church liturgical groups that the apostles would say, that's my church, I recognize that, or that's the, the faithful continuation of what we started? Right, and, and to me, it's, 
it's a question of the whole package, right? Um, I, I don't think that that there is an antithesis between the Orthodox Church and the other churches you mentioned and other ones you could mention, right? Where these are opposites, right? <laughs> um, but it, it's a it's a question to me of the the fullness of the faith, uh, sort of nothing left out, <laughs> right? Everything everything preserved. And uh, th there are, um, for example, many Roman Catholics who will look at the Orthodox Church and recognize, for example, there are a lot of things they're still doing that we used to do that we maybe don't anymore. Um, but the, the analogy I use when I'm talking to friends and, and family members who are Christians but not Orthodox Christians is uh, my maybe now infamous turkey sandwich example, <laughs> which is that... that uh, uh, other forms of Christianity sometimes could be compared to this analogy to a really good turkey sandwich. It's filling, it's nourishing, right? The, the bread is fresh, the turkey is fresh, right? Everything there is good uh, and, and it's feeding you. But when I talk about the Orthodox Church in this metaphor, I say in the next room over, there's a whole Thanksgiving dinner laid out and people are enjoying it. Right. So still turkey, right? still the vegetables, still bread, right? still those things, but more besides and and more more fullness to it and more more richness and, and depth to it. Um, it's not that I don't think those other those other groups and those other communities could gain more of that. They could, they could become more full orb, be more encompassing of all of life and of ritual and those things. Uh, I just think that if they did that, they start to look more and more like the Orthodox church. Uh, <laughs> and that, that that would be the way it progresses. And I think that would be a good thing. Uh, uh, you know, if, if we could all move, you know, in that direction. Um, but so, yeah, that would be my sort of short, elevator pitch version i guess uh, that, that's a that. great illustration i i have a feeling if people haven't heard it before it will now stick with them because it's a great visual i once again i really appreciate your time i appreciate you coming on the channel i know many people have been looking forward to this not least of which being myself i've really been looking forward to this and i know it won't disappoint them and it did not disappoint me i'd love to let you kind of finish off by just letting people know where they can find your work um if it's not sold out <laughs> and uh yeah, yeah just anything yeah. like that yeah but by, by the time you're seeing this there should be physical copies of uh, of the book religion of the apostles available uh if by some fluke they either still aren't or aren't again uh, that's they've been coming in and out of stock is is been the issue um then you can always get the ebook uh, direct from Ancient Faith or uh, through uh, Amazon or other online yeah, ebook dealers. There's also an audiobook that I read on Audible. Um, I've got my uh, blog, the Whole Council blog, which is sort of a spinoff of the uh, Whole Council of God podcast, which is really just recordings of my parish Bible study, uh, which is a I started that in 2010 in Genesis 1 verse 1, going through the Bible verse by verse. It's not all recorded. Uh, Ancient Faith has been distributing that as the whole Council of God podcast since the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and a lot of the previous material is available on my uh, YouTube channel in uh, potato quality audio. Uh, that's why Ancient Faith did distribute that. Uh, 
and then uh, I'm the co-host, as you mentioned, the Lord of Spirits uh, podcast with Father Andrew Damick. That is uh, a live. It's live call in on the uh, second and fourth Thursdays of the month, and then you can listen to it anytime wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, you can pick that up. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Thanks to everyone who watches this sometime in the future. I do not take your time lightly. I really appreciate that. And I'll close as I always do by saying until next time, be sure to be on the lookout for more videos, but most importantly, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that will change the world. I hope you guys enjoyed this video. I want to say a big thank you before we go to our sponsor for today, another one of them, Kindred. Kindred is a ministry that exists to help people reclaim sacred time with God in their daily lives. And they do this by creating some of the most beautiful Bibles I've ever seen. You're gonna see some videos of them here as I talk, and I think you'll really enjoy them. If you haven't gotten one already, I'd encourage you to go to kindredapostle.com and to check them out. And if you do so, use the promo code GOSPEL10 for 10% off your order. Whether you just want like a beautiful coffee table book, you're looking for a gift for someone who is difficult to buy for because they're just like a Bible nerd. If so, they probably watch this channel. Well, if they watch this channel, they're probably a Bible nerd. This could be a great thing for them. Or if you just want a different way to approach the Bible, I'd encourage you to check them out. So again, that's kindredapostle.com and use the promo code GOSPEL10 for 10% off your order. Well, guys, thank you so much for watching this video. Truly, that means so much to me. I really appreciate all of you. If you enjoyed it, I'd encourage you to click like, and maybe even if you're feeling wild and crazy, click subscribe and the bell to stay tuned for more. Until next time, I'll see you guys. Peace. Peace.